Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the September 24 edition of Ask a Leader. Well, folks, it's National Voter Registration Day, and I'd like to extend a warm and hearty welcome to all of the UCI students back in the saddle of higher education and welcome new UCI students to the wonders of and the delights of KUCI radio. Um, I'd also like to say hello back to the faculty now uh, under new leadership and hey I can welcome her UC System President Janet Napolitano. Welcome Janet. Mr. Napolitano to me. On today's show we have Paul Leonard with the Center for Responsible Lending to talk about payday loans. You know, the ones that rack up interest rates well into the three digits. Then back with us is Julie Fisher in the second half, whose book, Importing Democracy, the Role of NGOs in South Africa, Tajikistan, and Argentina, will take us directly into Syrian matters. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short break. Hey, everybody. Thanks for staying with me. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. According to the Pew Charitable Trust, 12 million Americans take out payday loans each year, spending approximately, and I hope people are keeping track here, $7.4 billion annually at 20,000 storefronts and hundreds of websites, plus additional sums at growing numbers of banks. My first guest is Paul Leonard, Director of California Operations of the Center for Responsible Lending, a national policy research organization dealing with lending issues which affect low-wealth households since 2006. Center for Responsible Lending's research and analysis takes up this consumer's charge amidst the signs of an economic recovery, such that it is, folks. While many states banning outright the practice, uh, with many states out, uh, banning outright the practice, California not only allows this practice, but is just now testing a new regulation. Therefore, we shall focus pretty much on, on how it stands in California with Paul Leonard. Paul was the Acting Assistant Secretary for Policy Development and Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy Development at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development in the Clinton Administration, then an Assistant Agency Director for Workforce and Human Services at the Alameda County, and a Research Analyst for the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, a nonprofit policy and research organization in Washington, D.C. He received his B.A. from Duke University and a Master's of Public Policy degree from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Paul Leonard comes to us today from Oakland. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here, Claudia. Well, I'm so glad we're going to be covering the levels from the federal to the state to the local, largely the state uh, protections for consumers are such that it is. So let's um, begin with the, uh, when you're talking about payday lenders that have no underwriting, what does this mean for the consumer? They're doing, they're, they're borrowing without a net. Well, the way a payday loan works, Claudia, is that it, it's their payday lenders are targeting borrowers 
um, who feel like they need short-term money right away. And uh, essentially uh, what it means is that a borrower who must have a checking account will come and write a post-dated check to the lender uh, in California for no more than $300. Uh, the borrower will leave with $255 in their pocket, that's the size of the loan, uh, paying a, 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 uh, an interest rate on an annual basis of 459%. In order to qualify for a loan, all you need to do is have a checking account, a post-dated check, and to be able to verify a source of income. The lender is not in any way evaluating whether the borrower has the income that will be flowing in order to repay the loan without having to reborrow. And the big problem with payday loans is that, that they're lending to borrowers who simply don't have the resources to repay the loan, get through and pay all of their basic expenses of rent and groceries, and not have to reborrow again and again and again. And you get caught in a cycle of debt. And California represented pretty high there. With uh, Actually, we are second after Texas in terms of how many millions are tied up in these loans. That is, uh, that's correct. Uh, California uh, represents, uh, every year California is paying uh, almost $600 million in, uh, in fees for these, uh, for these payday loans. As you noted, second only behind uh, the state of Texas. Uh, despite having um, uh, uh, only a, a maximum loan amount of $300. That's that's really incredible. So, when you um, when we're talking about the quick repayment period for these, just how quick is it? I understand that students. Oh well, we'll talk about the students in a second. But what? How quick is it? And well, well, generally the the uh, the period is no more than thirty thirty days, um, and it's tied. It's generally tied to uh, the borrower's source of income. So whenever it is that the borrower is going to get paid, or uh, is going to get some form of of uh, cash assistance, whether it's public public assistance like uh, welfare benefits or unemployment insurance, it's usually either 14 days or, or 30 days, although the first loan, you know, could be as short as just a few days Wow! Un- until whenever it is the next paycheck is, is coming in. So, and then I noticed in some of the lovely graphics from the Center for Responsible Lending there uh, that it's a matter of serial uh, repeat loans to bail out the previous loan so it stacks up to some people could have up to 10 different payday loans going on well, uh, you know, there, right now California doesn't have anything uh, to stop a borrower who uh, needs more money from going from one store to the next and taking out a whole series of payday loans. But the but the really big problem is that is that borrowers get into this uh, this debt treadmill or a cycle of debt that yes. they can't really get out of. They think they're taking out just a two week loan and they don't necessarily want a longer term loan. Or uh, but they're they're sort of falsely optimistic about their ability to repay the loan uh, out of their next paycheck and, and have enough money left over for all of the other necessities of life. Well, I, and so I, what happens is yes. they'll come back in two weeks, they'll, they'll repay their loan, and then borrow it right back again for another $45 fee. So what happens in California is borrowers take out on an average of between seven and ten loans generally in a row to pay off one $255 loan. 
And that adds up. That's money that doesn't go in, as you said, into the groceries, into... And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, while people are keeping track of all of that, when we have really super deadlines like the Health Care Affordable Act of, of uh, electing to join any kind of a health care plan, that, that borrower is really tied up in knots with their financial household decisions. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it certainly is, you know, I mean, at some level, uh, you know, the payday lenders are, are preying on borrowers who simply don't have enough income for the day-to-day expenses of their lives, including health care and food and housing. Uh, the, the payday lenders market their product as an emergency short-term cash product that is intended to be for a specific unanticipated emergency. But there's reams of research, including uh, a great report that was done by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that shows in reality most borrowers are taking out these loans uh, to, to pay for everyday costs of living like rent or groceries, things which are, uh, are important, but they're not unanticipated. And, and clearly any loan, but particularly a loan that charges a 459% interest rate, it is not well suited to folks who simply don't have enough income to keep up with their expenses. Well, so for those of you who've just joined us, we're talking with Paul Leonard. He's the director of California operations of the Center for Responsible Lending. As I said, a national policy research organization working on lending issues affecting low-wealth households. Here on Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming at Loan Shark Shops at QC, on KUCI.org on the web. So when you're talking to, you've got the students here, those that are up and uh, walking around and shedding their orientation lessons and moving, transitioning into their trips to the, the bookstore. What do you have to tell the students who think, well, I'll just buy my books on a payday loan because I'm just running a little bit short right here on September 24th? Well, I, you know, I would tell the students that the payday loan is the last kind of loan you want to get to, 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 to uh, buy your school books unless you have some uh unless you have some guaranteed source of income coming in that's going to allow you to repay that loan um after 2 weeks then in general i would desperately stay away from any payday lender well when we're talking about the oversight here earlier uh, you talked about the consumer financial protection bureau now that they're up and running mr cordray is was appointed at, at last and so what kind of protection on the federal level are we seeing and and how appropriate is it that there is the federal protection for well you know for the first time we're seeing uh, federal uh, bank bank and the consumer regulators uh, taking an aggressive stance in trying to uh, weigh into to payday loans uh, the the dodd frank financial reform act explicitly charged the new federal consumer financial protection bureau uh, with the charge of regulating and setting standards nationwide wide for payday lenders. In most cases, uh, payday lenders have been regulated by states. For the first time, the CFPB, as it's called, will yes. be able to establish uh, federal regulations regarding uh, payday loans. They will not be able to uh, to establish interest rate regulations, but they will look at other aspects of the product. We hope sometime uh, issuing regulations sometime within the next year. As their first step, they put out a, a study that documented 
that on average uh, borrowers are uh, typically taking out 10 loans per year, yes. um, uh, leaving, you know, once again confirming uh, the various studies that have been done by my organization and other uh, consumer organizations that show the real, the real dangers of payday lending for most borrowers. And those that want to follow more of this, that there is the all-important resource, among others, is responsiblelending.org, as well as there's the California Reinvestment Coalition, of which you are a part, correct? That is correct. We are a member of a statewide coalition of groups that that work on uh, consumer financial service issues as part of the California Reinvestment Coalition. And they can be also uh, looked up at the calreinvest.org website so that people can see what's going on. So uh, as we're talking about interest rate setting and uh, caps and that kind of a thing for California, let's talk about what's been happening in the legislative arena and what uh, the Senate Bill 318, that that part was uh, adopted in this legislature, and I believe uh, Governor Brown had signed that one. That's a, that is a fait accompli, correct? Well, um, so this is a, uh, a bill that would create some uh, alternative loans that are not payday loans, but are um, less expensive than payday loans, uh, and that have more rigorous standards in terms of requiring the, borrow- the lender to evaluate the borrower's ability to repay, making sure that borrowers don't already have too much debt in order to be able to repay their loan, ensuring that they will um, offer, uh, they will report the payments to credit bureaus, which payday lenders do not do. So borrowers who are trying to establish credit scores and improve their credit scores, payday loan doesn't help you do that at all. Uh, that bill has been uh, has been uh, passed by the legislature. Uh, it allows for interest rates that are still relatively high, up to 70 to the mid 70 percent on loans that can be anywhere from uh, uh, 250 to 2,500 dollars for uh, terms that could be as short as three months. In some cases, will go as long as as a year uh, or more. Uh, but um, uh, the, those are loans that are going to require the lenders to really evaluate the borrower's ability to repay. It's not clear how many borrowers who are taking out payday loans will necessarily qualify for those loans. So there could be then a no, no transaction occurring if the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the lender is really going to do just do di- their due diligence. Well, that's correct, and I think that's the concern is yes. that, um, you know, if a borrower gets turned down for one of these relatively high-cost but better alternative loans, if a borrower feels like they need money, they can still go to a payday lender and get immediately get caught in this kind of cycle of debt, which is going to leave them much worse off uh, than, than when they started out. Well, tell me, Paul, how would that new lending institution make itself known in California if it's a new setup? Well, there are uh, there are a few uh, few lenders that have been licensed to do this kind of lending already. Uh, a couple of which are based online. One called LendUp, one called Fair Loan Financial. Another one that is uh, serving primarily a, a Latino market in in markets and stores across the, across the state called Progreso Financiero. 
Um, so these are uh, entities that are currently up and running, and this will uh, this legislation will give them uh, a little bit higher interest rates, a little bit higher fees, origination fees, and penalty fees uh, that will help to make them more profitable and serve a part of the market that is not well served. But it doesn't do anything to take away the risks of payday lending, and I want to really reiterate that point. If you can't qualify for a responsible loan, what people will do is go off to a, a, a payday lender, because a payday lender, as long as you have a source of income that you can verify and a checking account, you're going to get a loan whether or not you have the ability to repay that loan or not. The best customer for a payday lender is somebody who can afford to make a $45 payment every two weeks, but who can't afford the full balloon payment of $300 and be done and walk away. But that's not happening. That's No. Not. Wow. So we have we've talked about the Senate Bill three eighteen, which which it is it is signed into law. It and when does uh, it, it is not, I don't believe the governor has not, signed it into law yet. The well, legislature has passed it and it's awaiting the governor's signature. I expect that the governor will sign it into law shortly and will take effect uh, January of next year. Is this something listeners might be interested in? A little letter, or they 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 should stick with some of those other letters I've been asking them to write. Uh, you know, I think that uh, you know this is a bill that was uh, relatively not controversial among legislators I don't I think there was only one member of the legislature who voted against it um, uh, you know the the uh, certainly the legislature and 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 we are really interested in finding uh, alternative and responsible loans but but that doesn't um, obviate the need to really rein in and provide tighter regulations and consumer protections for borrowers who are taking out these payday loans well, let's tell us about what happened with the Senate Bill 515 and whether um, it didn't make it through, but what was in it for protection as a kind of a model for what perhaps the legislature can be persuaded into uh, more vigorously supporting with or without their their. Lot, sure. Well, you know, Claudia, for the la- we've been working on payday lending here in California and uh, in the legislature for the last five or six years. Uh, unlike many other states, California, we have pro- we've proposed what has what has passed in a number of other states, which is a simple thirty six percent annual percentage rate cap on 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 these kinds of payday loans. Uh, that kind of legislation has been met with with a really tough resistance in the legislature never really getting serious consideration. Um, at the same time, the payday lending industry has actually been looking to expand payday lending in California by increasing the maximum size of a payday loan from 300 to $500. And if a borrower can't afford to get out and pay off a $300 payday loan, we think raising the maximum amount will make it more likely that more borrowers get stuck in a deeper and, and stickier debt trap than they are in today. We took a, a new approach this year and sponsored a bill that would have established an annual cap on the number of payday loans that a borrower could take out that would be enforced by a statewide database. Um, In Washington State, they enacted a similar kind of cap uh, at eight loans per borrower per year. And remember, these are emergency short-term loans, not long-term high-cost debt. So an eight-loan limit in Washington State uh, seems more than reasonable for so-called emergency loans. Uh, some almost one a month. Uh, that eight loan limit in Washington State was successful in reducing the overall volume of payday loans in California by 75%. 
Here in California, we proposed uh, reducing, uh, establishing a six loan per year cap. Uh, but unfortunately, that bill, when it came before the Senate uh, Banking Committee, uh, chaired by uh, Senator Lou Correa from uh, down in Orange County, right, 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 um, Northern County, that bill was uh, was defeated in uh, the first in its first policy committee hearing, uh, despite the fact that this was really a compromise proposal from our perspective, short of a 36 percent rate cap, which would have even more severely limited uh, and provided much more responsible loans to borrowers. Well, let's dissect this a little bit, do a little forensic work. What was the vote on the committee level? Well, we had, uh, we, it was split. All of the Republicans uh, voted against the bill and were joined by, uh, I believe, three Democrats who voted uh, against the bill and one Democrat who abstained from voting, which was essentially the equivalent of voting against the bill. Uh, we had three Democrats who voted, who voted uh, for the bill. Um, uh, and, and again, you know, we have, this was a compromise proposal from our earlier provisions. We, we felt like it was a reasonable position. It, it actually was at the, when it was finally considered in the committee, it not only was there a six loan limit, which was raised from the original proposal of four, but we also raised the, the maximum loan amount to $500, which is something that the industry has been seeking for right. a number of years. Uh, despite that, um, you know, the, the payday lending industry has uh, lots of money that it invests in lobbyists and in campaign finance uh, to candidates in, and, and uh, elected officials in the legislature. And they, uh, you know, continue to convince legislators uh, that uh, this proposal was going to be uh, dangerous and was going to eliminate payday lending, even though in Washington State, uh, payday loans are alive and well. There are just fewer of them. Well, so they, I guess, were able to convince legislators that it is a product that doesn't exist anywhere else. They probably try to make it look like a social safety net, or they just reminded the legislators of their the financial support that those payday lending companies provide those Well, I'm sure campaign. they were saying that behind closed doors, but they did, you know, one of the payday industry lobbyists did equate these payday loans at 459% annual rates as being equivalent to the social safety net. And I, and I find it ironic uh, that the same legislature, which has cut back and limited uh, critical public assistance benefits like unemployment insurance and CalWORKs, um, would at the same time preserve a 459 percent interest rate loan to borrowers who can't afford to repay that as, as something that looks like a social safety net. Well, I'm not sure if it's ironic or obscene <laughs> when you're talking about such high interest rates as effectively 450 percent. That's just amazing. So, and will Lou, Senator Lou Correa is going to term out at the end of the session, that is next year, and there, it's mm -hmm. a crowded, competitive field right now. I know a few of the candidates running. So what would you think for any listeners that are in here this now or in the podcast later, what will they be looking for in a candidate? What will they want to hear them say in the, the lead up to the election in 2014 to replace Lou Correa? Well, you know the the um, you know the the committee assignments will vary year to year, but I do think it's important for um, legislators to be asked about what their position on payday lending is and whether or not these kinds of loans should continue unabated to trap borrowers in a cycle of debt that they can't really get out of. Or maybe um, to ask whether they're also 
receiving support from payday lenders. Well, that's true. I mean, they clearly, uh, lots and lots of uh, the payday lenders are uh, spreading around support to our elected officials of both parties um, at larger and larger amounts on a, on a regular basis. That is remarkable. Well, uh, there's some lovely coverages in the Sacramento Bee editorial. That and the Mercury, the San Jose Mercury's also written some good pieces, op-ed pieces on that. So the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, what kind of, was the, were the payday lenders involved in forestalling Mr. Cordray's uh, appointment and funding of his p- appointment? There was a fairly sort of concerted effort to keep Mr. Cordray from being confirmed. Finally, he was confirmed and will be in in his position for five years. Um, And uh, we strongly hope uh, that that the CFPB will come forth with some uh, regulations that will, uh, for example, require a payday lender to evaluate the borrower's ability to repay their loan, not just to sort of see that they have some income, but if a borrower has income that's already committed to all of the other expenses that they've already um, in- incurred, uh, then not having, then just simply having income is not a sufficient standard for whether or not a borrower is likely to be able to repay the loan. And that's something that the CFPB can address. Uh, one other uh, threat that is out there are these folks who are operating on the Internet. And in the yes. last month or so, right. we have seen some really important developments from state regulators, in this case, from New York State, where the financial services regulator uh, basically sent a letter to a number of the Internet lenders, some of whom are affiliated with Native American tribes, and who are claiming that tribal sovereignty trumps state law in allowing them to charge even higher interest rates for larger payday loans and trapping borrowers in an even deeper cycle of debt. Um, The New York regulators' uh, letters to uh, those those lenders, New York State has a 25% interest rate cap on all these loans, combined with letters to banks saying that if you're an Internet lender, that the banks are essentially facilitating the electronic transfer of funds and that the, that the, the state hopes to choke off the use of uh, bank-regulated uh, networks of funds to make it much harder for these uh, illegal, unlicensed online lenders to continue to apply their trade. Well, that's what they're doing there. I imagine we, with our reservations throughout the state of California, that is something that's certainly there's an eye on how that process is playing out. But we don't have the regulation in place, but we made, so we don't have the leverage that the New York governor has in trying to rein that in. Well, uh, you know, it's not entirely clear, uh, number one. And number two, so far, I don't believe the California tribes have been actively partnering with these online payday lenders to facilitate this. Mostly this has been uh, tribes that are located in other parts of the country who are offering these loans to California borrowers via the Internet. Um, And so, um, uh, you know, our view is that a payday loan is a payday loan, and it's illegal if it exceeds the current uh, regulated interest rates here in California, and that all such entities are required to be licensed and regulated in California. If you're offering that loan to a California resident, uh, you should be regulated and held accountable to the laws of the state of California. Well, let's. Uh, what I wanted to do is wrap up here talking about the city-by-city by city progress that you're making. Long Beach has adopted a piece, and then Sunnyvale, it's up for a, a vote today up there in the Bay Area. What, what do those municipalities have going on for them? Well, 
Well, I think what you're seeing is a really interesting development, and, and frustration, uh, you know, there's interest and frustration at the local level to try and do something about the scourge of payday lending, mm-hmm. and yet the state is the only one who can regulate the type of product and avoid the kind of debt trap that we've been talking about. But what we've seen is that a number of localities have uh, taken action using zoning ordinances and restrictions to limit the numbers of payday lenders to limit where they are located, how close together they can be, how close they can be to schools and other kinds of, of uh, public institutions, uh, to, try and, to try and do what they can do to contain uh, the problems that are associated with payday lending. At the end of the day, uh, those local efforts are really a, a sign of frustration uh, with, the, with the really much more important need for the state legislature or uh, the federal regulators to do something that can actually affect the the product and its design, which captures people in this cycle of debt. Well, I'm sure our listeners are sufficiently uh, agitated about how uh, inordinately unfair this kind of a practice is, preying on, as you say, uh, households of of lesser wealth. I'm going to repeat the website to follow what the Center for Responsible Lending is, uh, where they are on the web. It's responsiblelending.org, all lowercase letters, of course. And then the California Reinvestment Coalition is calreinvest.org. Well, uh, Paul Leonard, I want to thank you. Paul Leonard is director of the California Operations of the Center for Responsible Lending. This is uh, an organization working on lending issues affecting low-wealth households. I really appreciate your taking time out from your your day of advocacy at research and, and mobilizing uh, people. I wish you all the best, and thanks for spending the time today. Thank you, Claudia. So we will get ready for the other half in just a minute. I'm going to bring on Julie Fisher with her extensive research on non-governmental organizations and their role in something as wildly intractable as Syria. We'll be back in just a little bit. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. In the second half now, it's my pleasure to bring back to Ask a Leader, Julie Fisher, author of her the new book I want you to hear about uh, more than once in this interview is Importing Democracy, the Role of NGOs in South Africa, Tajikistan, and Argentina. A book, as I said, recently published by the Kettering Foundation. It's based on over 100 interviews with the leaders of democratization NGOs, uh, that is non-governmental organizations. Despite the country differences, South Africa and Argentina are struggling democracies and Tajikistan is a dictatorship. We're going to draw some uh, comparisons mostly with uh, Tajikistan and Syria for this particular show today. Julie worked as a consultant to many international development agencies evaluating both micro-enterprise projects and partnerships between international and indigenous NGOs about which we'll hear and learn a little bit and uh, imagine on what could be happening in Syria. Julie Fisher taught comparative politics at Connecticut College and was lecturer at the program on nonprofit organizations at Yale University. She spent 10 years as a program officer at the Kettering Foundation, a think tank in Dayton, Ohio. Her earlier books, from which her latest book is a logical extension, are The Road from Rio, Sustainable Development and the Non-Governmental Movement in the Third World, and Non-Governments, NGOs and the Political Development of the Third World. 
She earned her Bachelor's of Science at Pomona College and her Master's and PhD at Johns Hopkins. With her richly topical coverage and helping us address a host of, of those opera concepts today, and she's the one, she's been able to watch President Obama in action at UN while I'm getting some other shows ready this morning. She can talk about that uh, today. As before, she comes from uh, she comes to us from Portland, Maine. Welcome back to the program, Julie Fisher. Thank you so much for inviting me back. You know, I have I can't resist uh, saying something. I've had over forty radio interviews about this book, and you're the only woman. What is going on with talk radio? Oh in this my country. Well, I don't know, but that's uh, sufficient. Uh, sufficient. Um, kind of an accolade that I'll bring to the next uh, next heady speaker like yourself, a guest for my show. Thank you for that. And uh, well, well, that means I've got lots more caring. I've got to do double what the uh, what the guys are doing. Well, yeah, I don't know what it is. But anyway, well, I've learned a lot about American politics from these interviews. Oh, I bet you have. Well, for those of the listeners um, shaking off their sleep and shaking off the orientation and l- listening to what they we've got to offer KUCI here on their campus and those that are motoring around and listening uh, streaming on KUCI.org around the world, let's hope. Uh, for those who missed your earlier appearance, would you tell us what you mean, Julie Fisher, by importing, or in other words, who's importing what and how? Well, let's, say, let's define NGO first. It let's. stands for non-governmental organization, and it's what we call nonprofit organizations in this country or voluntary organizations. They're not governmental, and they're not for-profit businesses. Uh, charities go in this category here. So it's a big category. And the category, the, the subcategory that this book is about is NGOs in these three countries that promote democracy consciously and specifically in one way or another. And there are many ways to promote democracy uh, because democracy is about a lot more than elections. So that is the interviews that I did were almost, with a few exceptions, with people who run or head these organizations in the three countries. And what's amazing is, despite the really dramatic differences between these among these three countries, this phenomenon is the same in all three, and it is also the same in many other countries. I have an appendix in the book that. Uh, that covers 15 other countries where this phenomenon occurs. I think uh, what is important about the title, though, is the, is the phrase importing democracy. Right. We know that uh, exporting democracy, particularly militarily, as we tried to do in Iraq and Afghanistan, has not worked out very well. No. And so what importing democracy means is that people... It, want democracy for their own country, and they bring in or import ideas from abroad, and they combine them with some of their own local traditions, which are all very often only evident at the local level. Village councils, for example, in Tajikistan is an example of of a a long-standing democratic tradition, despite the dictatorship at the top. These councils survived the Soviet period, miraculously, and now, with the help of democratization NGOs in Tajikistan, they are beginning to include women for the first time. Yes, including women, as you were talking about, including women in our own media. (laughs) Well, and so, speaking of the democratic process, I'd like you to 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 ask you ab- about 
breaking down and defining some of those essential components. You did a little bit last time, but for it, it's a really important uh, revisiting of uh, these essential components, the loyal opposition, civil society, and political culture. And we'll, we'll transition to what that looks might look like with Syria's uh, political legacy. So, But what would those elements be essentially? Well, the first, the first element, I, I think, and, and if you don't have this, nothing else is going to work, is law-based civil liberties. In other words, if, if you have no civil liberties, then it's very hard for civil society to develop. So law-based civil liberties is number one. Like number freedom of speech. Number two is a political participation. Okay. And that includes elections, but it includes a lot more than elections. I mentioned the village councils. It includes people getting active in their communities. It includes public deliberation, which we can talk about later, which the Kettering Foundation focuses on. Uh, the third category is a loyal opposition. And even though I put it third, it's really perhaps the most difficult to achieve because uh, South, neither South Africa nor Argentina really has a strong partisan loyal opposition. But civil society, the democratization NGOs and other NGOs that work on public health or economic development or other, other things, uh, they are becoming part of the loyal opposition in these countries. And the democratization NGOs help achieve that or promote that. And the fourth category is a democratic political culture, because if you don't have that, nothing else is going to last that you do. A dem- part of a democratic political culture is teaching children about democracy in schools, but another part of it is combating the really negative political cultures that already exist. And here we could just talk about corruption and violence, to name a few. Well, let's say let's see what in those essential elements what are what is alive at all whether it's uh in the present in syria or yeah. ever in the past because it's it, this is swimming more than upstream it's a tsunami uh working against all those elements there absolutely i mean this is the most extreme case that you could pick i mean Tajik stems a dictatorship but there is some room for democratization even within that dictatorship when you talk about syria i am not an expert on uh local organizations in syria but my guess from what i have read is that before the civil war people did get in it's despite the dictatorship people did act in their own communities. They probably got involved locally. And so that would be one of the the strengths we could point to. But, of course, nothing like that is possible now under conditions of a civil war. So what we have in Syria is the extreme end of the democratization scale. If you want to say that, you know, some Western Europe perhaps, or, you know, Finland with their great educational system is probably, you know, the most, one of the most democratic countries on earth, uh, then you'd have to put Syria away at the other end. Uh, so there's not much going on that is even, uh, whatever was going on before, which was probably not much. Before two years ago. Yeah, is not possible now. Uh, most of the uh, NGOs in Syria are in exile. Uh, there are some human rights NGOs that were Syrian, but they're not there anymore. They're probably locate that one of them's in London now. So it's very difficult under those conditions of violence for any sort of change to occur. And, you know, I think we could talk about some of the things, I mean, there is some hope, at least on Syria, a little bit now with this possible agreement between Russia and the United States. Um, I, I couldn't help thinking about an international relations professor of mine when I was an undergraduate at Pomona College in California, not too far from where you are, no, not- Bill Olson, a great teacher who said once, well, war is a catastrophe. 
but the threat of war can all can sometimes be can sometimes promote diplomacy. Okay. And I think that's where we are internationally on Syria. I thought about that quote in the last few weeks. Well, at least it's buying time from the catastrophe opening up uh, the opening the wound up more deeply and uh, exactly. uh, going exactly. from a scratch to a hemorrhage of sorts or, or I want to say a gouge to a complete right. hemorrhaging. Well, um, I want to backtrack one thing that you were saying about NGOs in exile, because in South Africa, as one of the case studies in your book, uh, the importing democracy, the role of NGOs in South Africa, and Tajikistan, Argentina, that they they were alive and well, and they were uh, keeping parties oars in the water. It, I mean, uh, yeah, people that were going to be in a position to negotiate some kind of a transition, I'm not saying peace, but a transition for getting the national, na- African National Congress back into uh, political legitimacy. So is there, uh, this could be, uh, there could be some NGOs that would be in a similar way able to step up when some of this vacuum is uh, starting to yeah. dissipate, if, th- I think if there is right. such a thing. I think you're right. Uh, on, having said that, though, um, I don't think if you were going to look at Syria before the Civil War, that you would find that, I mean, if you looked just at the Middle East and you asked the question, how strong is civil society in each country in the Middle East? This is before the Arab Spring. It, it would be an interesting comparison. I don't think you'd find that Syria had a very strong civil society. That doesn't mean there weren't any organizations there trying to do good things in development. Or I just, I'm not an expert on Syria, but my impression is it was rather weak. Um, Similarly, and this is particularly interesting in terms of what has happened in Egypt, um, when I wrote my first book, which was 20 years ago, um, I was making some generalizations about the entire third world, and I generally believed, and every bit of evidence I uncovered suggested, that most of these NGOs, which were basically working on development, not democracy, that most of them were quite autonomous, that they didn't depend on one single uh, international donor. Uh, if they did, they didn't last very long, and nor did they depend on governments. And I said there was one exception to this rule, and that was Egypt, where the NGOs in Egypt that worked on development, on social development, economic development, were very dependent on the Mubarak regime for their funding. And I think that weakened civil society in Egypt mm-hmm. considerably to right. the detriment of the transition process that we're now seeing. Well, I just want to say, for those of you who've just joined Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, my guest is Julie Fisher, expert and scholar in civil society and democracy. She's recently published Importing Democracy, the Role of NGOs, that is non-governmental organizations, in South Africa, Tajikistan, and Argentina. And her case study of Tajikistan is what mostly approximates the disaster opening up in Syria, Syria being what we're trying essentially to focus on today. Well, so as in the case, been the case in Tajikistan that you cover in your book, well, will the same take place in Syria that you state that, and I'm quoting you, after civil war, police forces were filled mm-hmm. with combatants who were aggressive and psychologically disturbed. And that's, that's we're not even talking about the proxy here, we're talking about uh, the war being waged, but those in inside Syrian society. What will we what do we learn from Tajikistan that applies yeah. with Syria? Well it's a, a terrible I mean civil war creates a terrible aftermath even when peace comes. 
and that's been true in Tajikistan. Now, Tajikistan had the advantage of a civil dialogue, which was able, as I think I told you in my last interview, to actually be cut and pasted directly into the UN settlement. So there was a civil society dialogue, uh, the inter-Tajik dialogue, that helped end the civil war in the, back in the 90s. And uh, 50,000 people died. We don't think about it much, but that's ha- it's you know half the size of the Syrian casualties so far. Well, it's pretty considerable um, number Told, of people who right, died, right? And yet they did eventually settle it. Uh, but you're right. There, there's a terrible legacy of any war. There are people who are damaged in in any war, whether it's post-traumatic stress disorder or whatever. You know, and one of the NGOs I interviewed in T- in Tajikistan, as you may remember, Jahan has been working with uh, local police forces in Tajikistan to train them in civil, uh, in civil, in human rights and in uh, treatment of suspects. Uh, and it's you know they've had to really turn them around psychologically as well because the damage is terrible from these kinds of conflicts. And it's all, as I was alluding here, it, it's exacerbated by the fact that it is a hu- it's as much a proxy war as it's a civil war. So we've got an overlay of Sunni and Shiite and mm-hmm. Alawite, well, Alawite's the internal part, but the Sunnis and Shiites supporting both sides uh, in the proxy war, and that's making more complicated. It's a terribly complicated situation. The latest estimate by Jane's, which is a military yes. information group, is that half of the 100,000 uh, opposition fighters in Syria, or either about 10,000 of them are directly tied to al-Qaeda, yep. and another thirty to 40,000, almost half, are tied to other jihadists, violent jihadist groups. So it's a very messy, awful situation. And, you know, it's not so simple as to say, oh, we should be supporting the opposition. That's not so easy to do, uh, because we, we will end up supporting the wrong opposition almost inevitably. So I guess the is is the only way and it's not I'm not trying to sound simplistic I'm trying to pull some kind of rabbits out of the hat yeah. at least a gerbil <laughs> a hamster that is where uh, the, I guess we could trump the jihadi uh, intrusion into uh, what would have been civil society is by using the NGO resources that are available to provide for those essential needs in this yeah. vacuum so that that civil society is that uh, it's fomenting stability with democratic values sort of laced into the discussion but but providing I don't think we're only there the yet. I think you know most of the NGOs working in Syria now first of all they're not in Syria they're in the refugee camps in neighboring countries Jordan, most, of them, and most of them are international NGOs right and that's very essential work you're right you know providing for people's basic needs medical food you know all that humanitarian needs um, it, it's it's going to be hard to see the connection with you know I I think it's it's going to be I say in my book that democratization is a long hard slog everywhere but it's particularly so in Syria I I just uh, I hate to sound so pessimistic but the only light that I saw yes. and I watched President Obama's speech this morning okay at the United Nations and I think what's happened is very interesting because by reaching out to Iran at a time like this right that could change the international balance of power vis-a-vis Syria in other words, you know, Iran has been the sponsor of Hezbollah, which shifted the balance uh, toward uh, the Assad side, toward the government side in Syria. 
and uh, you know, I thought a couple of things were very interesting. We, yes. We've all heard that there may be talks. I think they're going to occur actually on Thursday between the foreign minister of Iran and uh, Samantha Powers, and Sec- Secretary of State Kerry, and Kerry. Okay. Uh, what What is interesting is that. Obama specifically mentioned the U.S. history vis-a-vis Iran before uh, the, revolu- the Islamic Revolution in 1979. In other words, the but overthrow of, of the uh, freely elected president in, in 1953 oh, by yes. the CIA. Uh, so he, by acknowledging that, he's saying, yeah, we know we made some mistakes in the past. Um, and maybe the Shah wasn't such a great thing overall for Iran, you know. And by doing that, he's kind of, uh, I think, um, how can I put it, lowering the temperature a little bit between the U.S. and Iran. Now, having said that, as everyone has pointed out, first of all, I think the thing we have to be most careful about is that even if Rouhani, President Rouhani, wants to change relationships with the U.S., um, the president... Hatami may not is the real power there, and uh, and I think we have to be careful because we don't really know what his role will be, and he may just be allowing the president to play this out, the elected president to play this out. But certainly, he does represent a change from um, Ahmadinejad as president. Absolutely, I mean, that, that guy was ugh, off the wall in a lot of ways. Right. So it it is it is uncanny. Uh, timing with the Iranian it election, is. handing over Mr. Rouhani to mediate maybe their uh, their presence with the Hezbollah in this proxy war in Syria. So it, it's really uncanny timing. You were talking about perhaps cooling the temperature, but it might even tip an alliance system that's been locked into this proxy yeah. war. And I think, the, I think that what's happened between Russia and the U.S. has also changed the picture. I mean, there are some very pretty dramatic diplomatic change has occurred in the last few weeks. Well, I just wanted, yes, to distinguish uh, snake oil from the real deal with uh, the the Russian proposal, because I I, I know how infuriated uh, various State Department people have said they've been working with this guy, and um, his name, I've not written down. Lavrov, yeah. So it's, um, I don't know how far that this is going to go, uh, this sort of... um, fig branch that's olive branch that's being offered there in terms of this interim negotiation about chemical war um, oversight well you know if you think about the disarmament that's occurred in the past the soviets and the americans have collaborated a lot on this if you think about the the that was called the non-lugar agreement to get rid of nuclear weapons you know in peripheral parts of the former Soviet Union. Uh, that was something that, uh, you know, the U.S. and Russia had a real history of doing that together, and that's when they were communists. Right. So, you know, I think it's a little bit, I mean, of course we have to be careful, of course we have to keep our eyes open, but I think it's really in the interests of both countries to, I don't think Russia really benefits by the Syrian civil war going on. They don't want to intervene militarily. They don't want us to. But, you know, that can be, I think if we can get some kind of resolution through the Security Council, that may be the main thing at this point. And apparently the Kerry proposal and the Lavrov proposal were very close. For, for They've been very close for weeks. And so this is sort of the formalization of what's been going on sub rosa for some time. Okay. All right. Well, that is, that is, I suppose, a modicum of optimism. It's 
But we <laughs> know the that the, when Lavrov and Putin are talking, they're really trying to maintain the their own hegemony in the in their the Russian society and the sort of increase the stock of Russian leadership internationally. So there is. Um, I have sort of a guarded yeah. optimism yeah. about how far that torch will be carried in settling down the temperatures, as you were talking about, in Syria. Well, I, I'm, I'm seeing after the Arab Spring, it looks like Syria is just going to make for a very long, hot yeah. Arab summer. And uh, I don't know where... I. I, well, we don't know where the reversal is going to occur, um, but for some of the, the the highest level UN discussions to hold um, some entities accountable, I don't know uh, who's uh, um, is Assad there for for real for good. Uh, is, is his um, is he? What would you say is are his days numbered, or is he going to just be able to to ride it all the way out into some kind of? Uh, I'm not sure. What what do you see as the some kind of logical extension? I, conclusion? I can't see him being part of any sort of transitional government. Nor can I see, even if he were on the list, that he would, you know, be reelected. He has a very small power base now, and uh, he always had a small power base. It was bigger. It was bigger. Yeah, but not great, but it was bigger than it is now. I'm I don't see him in the long run. But the long run, you know, we all thought he might be gone by now. Exactly. A, why few, I ask. a, a year ago, and it hasn't happened yet. And and uh, you know, this is given all of the growth of the jihadists on the opposition. It's it's vastly complicated the situation. I mean, if we were going to intervene on the side of the rebels, there was a time to do it, and it isn't now. It's over. That's that's uh, that door has shut. Okay. Well, that's what's made this so dangerous. Then that the yeah. because, as you said, the demographics of whether they're a, an Al Qaeda supported or other jihadi uh, supported yeah. uh, a rebel or or uh, units anyway that uh, it's right. Um, right. It's beyond our grasp. Well, it's. It, I don't think. I'm not sure. Optimism is uh, is warranted, <laughs> but for uh, any kind of, I guess it's surprise elements that are going to hold it. What surprise election results in Iran? Surprise kind of dance uh, interplay byproduct from. Uh, between Karia and Lavrov to to redirect anyway the um, and bring down that the temperature and the political dynamic in this. Uh, well, the conflict. key is going to be to see whether the uh, the the destruction, whether first of all, whether the chemical weapons I means a very complicated process to destroy chemical weapons to get them to get an accurate accounting. There's there's clear evidence, for example, that uh, even though. Libya, uh, that when Gaddafi was in power, that he, you know, his list of chemical weapons that he was going to destroy true. was very incomplete. That he was hiding a lot of others. Now that doesn't mean that it wasn't that, that the international effort to have him get rid of them wasn't worth it. I mean, I think we tend in the media, particularly people in the media, tend to think in terms of if it wasn't a hundred percent success and it was a failure, you know, and life isn't that way, and nor is or our international decisions or diplomacy. There are always partial victories and partial moving forward. I do see a kind of tectonic shift in the diplomatic picture, the international diplomatic picture that has occurred between Russia and the U.S., between Iran and the U.S. This, yes. Uh, and I think, I think that is the most important thing to look at in the, over the coming uh, weeks. Uh, because uh, nothing is going to change internally in Syria until the international picture changes. So as the proxy war will tip, 
tilt on this tectonic shift internationally that will Except be the possibly, where possibly, our cosmos is. at least possible. Okay, well, Julie Fisher, I'm sorry we don't have any more time right now. I'm really glad we got a chance to talk with you today here on KUCI. It's uh, This was Julie Fisher, author of Importing Democracy, The Role of NGOs in South Africa, Tajikistan, and Argentina. And Can I, you can can I just say yes. you can get the book on my website, yes. importingdemocracy.org. I was going to mention, yes. Kettering.org, the Kettering Foundation, or, of course, on Amazon, or if you want to support your local independent bookstore, have them order it. Please do. And you can follow Julie Fisher's blog as well on the website, importingdemocracy.org. Julie Fisher, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. We are going to uh, wrap up here in a wee bit. And I'm... I just wanted to make some announcements before I hand it over to Jorge that um, lots and lots of opportunity abounds in at the Great Park with the Solar Decathlon setting up as we speak. It's the first time that this exhibition has been hosted outside of Washington, D.C. And here's an opportunity, folks, to participate. The Observer Corps is a team of volunteers with the UCI School of Engineering seeking uh, active involvement in the adjudication process of the solar houses. Observers will rotate between houses and are afforded close interactions with the student decathletes, learning about their innovative designs and approaches and seeing the various competition houses at times when they're closed to the public. The Solar Decathlon uh, we'll rely on these observers to record the team performance in task completion contests, including appliances, comfort zone, home entertainment, hot water, and energy balance. Teams will be required to wash and dry towels, run the dishwasher, maintain a comfortable temperature and humidity, boil water, and simulate hot showers. Volunteer observers must be adults willing to commit nearly 47 hours between October 3 and 11th. And the schedule uh, for observers, it's starting on Thursday, so you can look it up at the Great Park Special Events, the Solar Decathlon website, ocgreatpark.org. So, uh, to, as I said, today's National Registration Day. The link is on our Secretary of State of California Governor's website. Next week, I'm going to take up the Solar Decathlon, and goodness willing, we'll even get to hear about the California Challenging challenge happening right beside the fabulous exhibit it's all about the distance folks so um, it's the furthest the vehicle vehicle can go at one dollar worth of energy well that's all we have today on ask a leader i want to thank everybody for listening next up is senior rosales with george had a hat <laughs> تحلم الاسامي